The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, November hardcovers and trade paperbacks. DJ Butler sits down with Charles E. Gannon, and we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Live Free or Die, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I'm Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David F. Shirod. Today we bring you part one of a two-part interview that DJ Butler conducted with Charles E. Gannon about Gannon's new novel, This Broken World, which is an epic fantasy unlike any other. It is out now in hardcover and all your favorite ebook formats, DRM free at Bain eBooks, of course. But first, the news. The November hardcovers and trade paperbacks are on bookstore shelves everywhere. First up, The Romanoff Rescue by Tom Kratman, Justin Watson, and Casey Azell, which we discussed last week on the podcast. So if you haven't given that episode a listen, I'd recommend it. Can there be a world without communism? Mankind's history is bound up in the fabric of fate, a strong cloth, tough and closely woven. Consider 1918, the last year of the greatest war in human history to date. As the belligerents stagger, Russia descends into civil war and chaos. It is there that a once mighty family awaits its fate. But even the strongest fabric has flaws. An escaped prisoner of war, injured but still highly capable, may be one. An airship at loose ends after a failed mission might be another. A German general suddenly coming face to face with the reality of the monster rising in the east could be a third. And if all these loose threads are somehow yanked out together, the effect just might be enough to tear the fabric of time and to rescue a desperate family, a family that happens to contain the last heirs of czars of Russia, and perhaps the Russia that is to come. Next up is This Broken World by Charles E. Gannon. Fate and Revelation. Since boyhood, Druadane expected he'd command an elite legion and become the leader his father predicted he would be. Fate had other plans. Assigned to a small group of outriders tasked with watching nearby kingdoms, Druadin discovers that the larger world is riddled with impossibilities. How do humanoid raiders, known as the Bent, suffer staggering losses and yet return as a vast horde every decade? How do multi-ton dragons fly? How have fossils formed in a world which Sacris insists has existed for only 10 millennia? To solve these mysteries, Druadain journeys into the dank warrens of the Bent, seeks out a dragon's lair, and ventures into long-buried ruins in search of ancient scrolls. But Druadain's most lethal enemy might lurk in even more unusual places, the temples and council chambers of his own homeland. And of course, we'll have more on that novel from Gannon himself here in just a moment. If short stories are more your speed, well, saddle up, partner. Gunfight on Europa Station is out this month, too. Take the wagon train to space. 
The final frontier ain't so final in these 12 tales of space exploration and adventure. There's a story for everyone who's ever dreamed of taking that star dusty trail to the farthest stars or of facing down a belligerent alien at high noon in a frontier settlement under the light of a strange sun. Get ready to hit the hyper thrusters as you set course for adventure, mystery, romance, and two laser gun slinging action. Yarns by Elizabeth Moon, Alan Dean Foster, Jane Linsgold, Will McCarthy, Martin Shoemaker, Alex Schwartzman, and more. And finally, In Fury Born by David Weber. Unleash the Fury. Zikotsky, Shalling Sport. Lovain, sacred fields of battle on far-flung worlds where warriors of the imperial cadre spent blood and lives defending human civilization. Alicia DeVries was there. She led the charge. Her reward? Betrayal by a deceitful empire. Retirement to obscurity. Now, Alicia is the only survivor of a brutal attack on her frontier world family. Not since the mighty Achilles has the ancient spirit of the fury taken up residence inside a human being, but not since Achilles has a warrior so skilled, so implacable, and possessing so much battle sense sprung up among the mass of humankind. Hero of the Empire, holder of the banner of Terra. This is a blood price to be paid. The Fury has awakened. Head on over to Bain.com and check out this month's Charles E. Gannon November ebook sale. To celebrate the release of his new novel, This Broken World, we're offering up a cornucopia of savings on Gannon's backlist. Save $2 per book on the award-winning Kane Riordan series and $1 per book on other Gannon backlist titles. The sale ends November 30th, 2021, and these prices are available wherever Bain ebooks are sold. And that's it for the news. And now part one of DJ Butler's discussion with Charles E. Gannon. Uh, all right. Welcome. Hi, this is DJ Butler. Welcome to the uh, Bain Free Radio Hour. I'm here with Dr. Charles E. Gannon uh, to talk about his new novel, This Broken World. Uh, it's out now in hard. Uh, it is hardcover, right? Uh, yes. It yes. is hardcover. That's very exciting. I didn't even have a question about that. That's, I, I'm going to add another question to our interview. <laughs> Uh, as well as your favorite ebook fa uh, formats, DRM free when you purchase them at Bain.com. Of course, uh, Dr. Charles E. Gannon's series include Hard SF Interstellar Epic, the Kane Riordan series set in his Terran Republic universe, along with the Braided Companion series, Murphy's Lawless, and Epic Slipstream Fantasy, the bro this broken world being book one of the Broken World series we're going to discuss today. Uh, his books have been nom nominated for four Nebulas and three Dragon Awards. He has won both the Compton Crook Award and the Dragon Award, and his books are consistent national bestsellers. He also collaborates with Eric Flint in that author's New York Times bestselling series, uh, The Ring of Fire, and has published two novels in John Ringo's Black Tide Rising series. He's also worked in uh, universes and shared worlds such as uh, War World, The Man Xin Wars, The Honorverse, etc., 
and various and has been published in various anthologies and analog SF magazine. You can visit and learn more about his various SF universes and projects past, present, and future at uh, www.charlesegannon.com. Chuck, welcome. And it's great to be here, Dave. Let's, uh, I'm very excited about this book. I should say I am very fortunate and I've actually read it already. Uh, and uh, and, and want to ask you some questions about it. Uh, and I'm actually going to start with, I think, sort of a few, a few quotes uh, uh, that I want to talk about. Maybe, maybe touch on some bigger ideas and then, and then get back into the plot and characters a bit. Um, one that really, uh, that drew a smile from me uh, was an observation. Uh, now, your your protagonist uh, is his is name pronounced Druadane. 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 Okay, and so people call it. So Dane is the shortened version. It can be Day Dane. That's what is. That's what his parents called him. Okay, Druadane. Fantastic. So there's this great comment from him at one point. I mean, it's a, part of his inner monologue, but he says all of the all of the scholars that he's known demonstrated one constant despite personal or cultural differences a stultifying obsession with their subjective expertise uh i thought it's really interesting um and uh, uh i think so here's my first question i guess um do you see this as an issue generally with the academy today we're going there okay i just thought this was <laughs> Well, I think this ties into the kind of protagonist you like to write. I, this, oh. to me, is very thematically Charles E. Gannon. So I, so I, it struck me. No, and it's it's funny because I I suppose to give context to viewers, um, the 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 and thank God because it's an overly long bio as it is. Um, but I um, my background is as a professor. Uh, it was not my first choice of a career. It was Plan B. Uh, the good news for Plan B was that I was good at it. The bad news for Plan B was that I was good at it, meaning that when you're good at that sort of thing, you suddenly your summers get eaten up. Now you're doing a lot of conferences, blah, 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 blah. And it's hard to write fiction in that sort of situation. Also, when you're a new dad. And that all sort of happened at the same time. Um, one of the reasons why Plan B was really essential. Um, uh, in the course of that, I was I was very fortunate, and it informs a lot of these these books. Uh, the Kane Riordan series, probably more than this one. Over the course of that time, I did five Fulbrights. Two were travel. One was a doctoral. Two were as a as a uh, uh, they they're called senior specialist Fulbright things. They, they're stuff you do when you can't go for a whole semester or something like that. And in the course of that, I was in a lot of embassy parties. And in the course of that, a lot of how a lot of the sort of oblique. The, the obliquity of official discourse in those sort of settings uh, got sort of drummed in my ear. And that shows up, I think, in some of what goes on in this, just in because, you, you know, Drew Adane, that protagonist, does run into high power people and high power people for a variety of reasons, not because they're slimy, sometimes they are, but, but because of their position frequently are not at liberty to speak as directly as as you and I, as you and I might. Um, and so all of that informed this, but what the, the real point is that I, I write that line about stultifying obsession with their area of interest. I think that's what it was, um, is, uh, is definitely something that comes from my time as a professor, um, which was about, I spent about 10 years 
in that in that uh, profession. And um, I think I think it's a, I think that aspect has been a challenge with the academy from day one. Yeah, uh, I, I think that the higher you get in what you do, the less time you have to do other things. Uh, one of you know being a writer, particularly a science fiction or fantasy writer, and 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 for people who are not aware, my interviewer is a is an extraordinarily accomplished author uh, in those same fields. Um, but and so he'll he'll smile knowingly probably when I say the more you the more you write, the less time you have to read. And I think in general, what happens is when you're a writer is, is any, any profession where you're operating at a, let's say a, a, a kind of dedicated level is your scope begins to narrow. You don't have the time or freedom uh, to, to really sort of rove. I, I actually think that being a science fiction or fantasy writer gives you, a, gives actually though is probably one of the least the least narrowing because by definition you're talking about everything and you're talking about what might be as well as what is and it allows us i think if we want to sort of keep our hand in the game um as far as that stultifying uh effect yeah and i would say it's only gotten more intense uh in the same way that look at doctors for instance and i, I don't mean doc doctorates i mean physical doctors the number of people who specialized in any area of medicine, let's say 1950, particularly 1930 and before, was very small. You, you know, you generally most, the, the demand for medical practice was essentially for what we would now call general practitioners. Man, has that, has that flip-flopped? I mean, you can't, you can't swing a cat without hitting 10 specialists. I think the same thing has happened in the academy. I think that the, the fields of knowledge have grown um, and I think that as they have, what's happened is that the silos tighten up and they actually grow narrower so that you're looking at fields that, that are now separate that used to be sort of lumped under one thing. I mean, there was no such thing called cultural studies in 1950. It was a sort of novelty in 1980. Now, if you don't have one, you're, you, you've got a problem with your program. Um, so, so yeah, and I, and I think that unfortunately, my last comment on this is that the politicization of the academy to whichever end it goes is um, only intensifies that. Yeah. And I think what it does is it, 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 if, if you're, if you're selling, if you're carrying somebody else's ideological water, whosoever that may be sure. at any kind of institution, because there are institutions on far to the right, as well as far to the left, you're not doing, you're not doing service to your students. And uh, and I think that 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 monomania of, of a chosen field can really can really add to that failing to do service to your students. So, yeah. And by the way, that the the thing you quote, I think, comes from one of his journals, doesn't it? Oh, it might. It might have been a journal. Yeah. But it's yeah, definitely. It's, it's we're in his head at that point. He doesn't say that to anybody. It's his observation. Right. Right. Yeah. It's one of the things, this was kind of a, an interesting thing that I worked out with Tony, actually. It was, it was new to this book, which was the idea of, we see his progression through his journals mm -hmm. because there was so much in this that I felt wanted first, first person. There were some comic jabs that I felt could only be done in first person, um, but it gives, a, it gives a look into his head, but the, the majority of the novel is a, uh, is a, is a third person limited perspective. So, so that's interesting that, um, 
that sort of gets into the question maybe of like what is the genre of the novel because because in uh we talk about in your in your biography which i think maybe must have come from you at one point that we refer to it as an epic slipstream fantasy mm-hmm. um as i was reading it you know one of the one of the things that um struck me is it is in some ways it's it's sort of a bildungsroman it's a novel about the person a character developing in fantasy usually we see that about wizards right it's we see harry potter or uh, ray ray feist's magician series or whatever right uh and and so i kept expecting to turn a corner and have druidine uh, be a wizard which at least as of the end of book one there's some interesting stuff but that has not happened yet um uh tell me about the genre of the novel best way i can tell you about the genre of the novel is stay tuned stay tuned okay <laughs> it's it without a, a waggish response I'll, I'll fill in a little but not a whole lot because i think some stuff would be giving away sure um it is there are a lot of things about this novel which i think are are um which is why I call it slipstream. And I think what I would call the slipstream reveal will go on with time. More than that, I cannot say. But um, one of the things that that is frequently, I think when people think of higher epic fantasy, um, uh, the the thought usually is of, um, uh, first of all, there's a real, there's a real tendency to either go towards the Northwest European sort of model or to pointedly veer away from it. Sure. There's a tendency towards the feudal or there's a tendency towards the imperial. There's a tendency toward, um, you know, things we, we, you know, we, there was a greater past that we are struggling to recapture or we are building towards something or we are about, you know, there, or there is an established, Uh, order that is about to get wiped out and our hero must do something about it. Um, I I, I never thought about it until you asked me just now, just as a matter of fact, it just came to me this very second. In the same way that I cite my, the Kane Riordan series in a kind of unusual place, it's not, it's not certainly not near future, nor is it far future. This is sort of, this incorporates elements of all those fantasy polarities I sort of I sort of just touched on. Yes, there is a lost past. Um, yes, there was a more powerful empire, but the process of empire and and it, and the what's the sort of motivations that are that are afoot in the world um, are are those motivations that would be consistent with empire and the methodologies of empire are not gone, as we see from his upbringing in his in his apparent homeland of Dunara. So you've got a mixture of, of many different cultures. Um, there's, you know, if people are going to want to say, oh, this is Northwest European, all I'm going to say is, again, stay tuned. And actually, I think if anybody gives this novel a, a, a fair look, they're going to see that there are a lot, there are a lot of, um, of, of involvements of very different cultures that we may not have seen all of them, that, that the, the novel may have not cited itself in one of them yet is just it, you can only do so much particularly when you're in book sure. one and and setting things up but it's uh it's i think it's got all those flavors that's one of the reasons i call it slipstream but there's an orderliness about it i think in terms of what is druidane doing i mean right he's trying to find out why the world is broken as far as he can tell 
that's a um and that leads him down some very scientific paths yeah so so that's another way in which it's slipstream and again i'll i'll conclude by saying stay tuned yeah yeah that's interesting he's um um we've already made a hash out of my questions we're like we're, we're running laterally across them that's okay uh I don't want to use the word deconstruction. I don't think that you're deconstructing anything, but you're, you interrogate a lot of things. And, um, and, and, and your choice of protagonist uh, or your, your setup of the protagonist really uh, moves us in that direction, right? He's, he's, uh, he sees things from an unusual perspective. He notices how things are put together. We see that from the very opening scenes when he sees it's like waterworks machinery or, or uh, something. And he, and he's, he's nine years old. Right. And he, yep. and he, he recognizes, Oh, that this is what it's doing. Um, and then as he's an adult, we see him asking uh, questions about uh, the, the origin, right. That's who we're talking about. Urge, the Urge. Yeah. Urge. Okay. And is origin one then origin is singular. Origin is plural. Oh, okay. Okay. So he, uh, well, it's he also has- an adjective. It's also an adjective. Okay. So he has a uh, uh, he, he see, has a similar reaction when he sees them, right? Like here's a set of known facts about the origin, and some of it doesn't quite add up. Uh, and this is the beginning of the the story is structured around a series of conundrums, uh, and the first conundrum is the origin, and we go into other ones. And and this is a this is something that lets you sort of interrogate. Uh, it seems to me heroic fantasy a little bit and it also seems to me i'm building up to a, I have a question here i promise uh it's it fine I, I i don't need i i'm i'm, I'm enjoying this okay good <laughs> um uh it seems to me also interrogating uh sort of gaming conventions like it, it seems to me like a like a person who whose primary exposure to epic fantasy or heroic fantasy if, if it was D and you came here to go ah the language is different, but I recognize a lot of, you know, ultimately maybe Tolkien-inspired the origin are something like orcs. We've got those species that's something like elves, clearly, you know, uh, except that at every turn you want to kind of stop and, and, and interrogate it. So I guess my question is, to what extent are you consciously incorporating kind of those gaming um uh tropes or ideas to be able to interrogate them bloody-minded intentionality yeah right down the middle as a matter of fact one of the when the the novel was proposed one of the things that i i said was it's going to actually take a number of beloved tropes and stand them on their head um which is which then feeds into the which I which I try to blend with the idea of the the fact that the world is broken, because I because part of I guess what you could say is there is a uh, I mean, and I mean I do this in various other ways. For instance, there's a point in the um, I'm I'm definitely I, I imagine this was pretty obvious. There's a there's a part where he's talking about what is it with heroes and being orphans. What the hell is this? You yeah, know, yeah. and he's noticing it as a statistical thing. He actually sees it. Yeah. You know, he goes and he's like, "These, why are these people reported more often than not? You wouldn't think that's possible." Yeah. Now, I don't care whether that's actually real in the universe or not, but it's actually my way of sort of trying to tip my hat a little bit and say, 
there are conventions that really do want to be interrogated. I mean, there are there are very tired tropes. Um, And if you're going to do that, it has to be more, it should be more, I think, than what I would call a plot convenience. One of the things, of course, that's convenient about an orphan is that you, they, it's sort of in in one sense, it gives them a great driver, even if, even the most serious novels, what will the driver be? Well, to replace all the relationships, the foundational relationships that that character did not have or, or that were taken from them, as the case may be. Um, but, but the real, I think the real question is, would, you know, uh, is who, who are orphans going to turn out to be? And, uh, and the, 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 the frequency with which that trope is used was something I could not let pass by without at least sort of giving it a, a jog in the ribs with my elbow as I did. Um, and, and full knowing because, Drew Dane's orphaned is an orphan at age nine, right? Yeah. So, um, so well, at least practically, right? Is... Yeah, uh, the, yes, that's a good point. Uh, again, no spoilers, yeah. <laughs> but um, it's there is definitely. I, I think you're right. It's not deconstruction because it's it's not saying this is this is weak. It is saying if we're going to use these things, let let's let's interrogate them. Let's make them make sense in their own right. Uh, it's going to become very. One of the things that folks will notice as they read this is that it right there in the very front, as you said, he's being raised by parents who themselves are very different, and how the parents are different is not entirely clear. Um, but there's another scene in the family house in the family house when he returns which indicates just how different the what the the empire that or the I guess you could say the remaining part of what was once called the empire of the silver eagle which is dunara um is still is passing out knowledge and information which is actually the the uh, the rest of the world has tended to move away from that it it forgot it and didn't much care um, and so there's an issue also of uh, in in the novel of what's the truth, and and it it ha- it's it's pretty much vertical at, in terms of organization in the novel. Every st- every level of organization will come back down to that. Will come back down to questions of that, and to some degree, the difficulty of knowing. So so absolutely bloody minded that I was I was yeah. interrogating these things. Yeah. Well, good. Uh, uh... So um, let me point out a couple of fun examples. So, so I, there was a line uh, that I loved and I uh, have forgotten who said it, but I think it's the, uh, it's the guy who's the head of the adventuring band he falls in with. Um, Ahern. Ahern, that's it. And uh, uh, at, at, an, at an early point, uh, they, they find some loot and he kicks through it and he says something like, um, Oh, yeah, here it is. Ahern smirked at both the palmfuls of coin fragments, glanced at the room behind them. I remember when all those weapons, all that gear was pure treasure. Now we just turn our noses up at it. And I thought, wow, that's like a thousand role-playing sessions I've been in where the party level one, you know, are desperate. Like, oh, I found a leather jerkin. Oh, yeah. Uh, And, you know, once they've kind of looted enough uh, opponents, then they start turning their nose up at that stuff and... uh, that's actually not where that one came from, though. That, oh, I would have to say, I mean, it, it suits in a way, 
but I believe that happens in the in what is called the undergloom of Gurgahar, Gurgahar, and that is they he Ahern and his his friend uh, Elhwer are um, they were strand they they were captive and they escaped in there. So when they when they're thinking about that, they're thinking about imagine yourself being let loose in tunnels. Uh, which is where this the the various species of what are called the bent um, sort of shelter because um, they are they are a, a cent there's a bounty on them they are not welcome on the surface um, and uh, and and so in this case these two were instead of being put to other purposes uh, were kept were kept captive um, and they escaped they had nothing they had absolutely nothing. So they're thinking of it more from the standpoint of survival in an, in, in an environment where they knew very little of the language. They, they didn't know how they'd gotten in. They didn't know any way out. And for them, it's, it's I would say it's more like, to, you know, if, you, if anybody here has parents or grandparents, uh, well, now it'd be grandparents almost certainly, who grew up in the depression or who grew up in privation in other parts of the world, not so fortunate as, as this one, um, you know those people, you know the, the, the way that sort of leaves a mark, a very, very hard imprint on the way they see the world, the way they see possessions, uh, their tendency towards salvaging and using everything they can. And at that moment, that's really um, much more about that because this, unlike the Ahern does and the others do hope to make money that's what they're in this for. Um, their thought is you, you know, is that they're they are looking for, for um, for goods. They don't want to be mercenaries. They don't want to be beholden to anybody else. Um, it is not a to make it very clear. It is not a world that is congenial to what in gaming would be considered adventuring parties. Um, the the world is very political. People with fighting skills are going to usually find it far more profitable and far more reliable to take one form of service or another. Um, so, uh, and 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 magic or what here is called, and there's a reason the term magic isn't used except by 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 folks who've forgotten. Uh, mansory is um, is fairly rare, as shows up in the novel. This is not some sort of you know. Florid and frequent magic use is absolutely not a part of this novel. Yeah. 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 Well, okay. So let me run, let me run. Interesting. Okay. So let me run a, a different uh, moment in the novel by you. Yeah. There's a, this is one where I thought, Oh, this is, this is a, an echo of a, of a classic Tolkien moment, but it really interestingly goes a different way, which is uh, in the two towers, Aragorn, Gimli and Legolas chase a party of orcs with kidnapped hobbits across the plain and when they when they get to the end of the pursuit, the orcs are dead, and they have this encounter with this mounted heroic culture, the Rohirrim. Mm -hmm. There's an interestingly similar sequence in which uh, Druidane, and now it turns out he's being pursued first of all, although he's out, he's looking for a missing colleague, right? Is is what has him out on this plane, but he's being pursued by uh, the Urgen or uh, uh, some bent. Uh, and, uh, and, and it ends uh, uh, sort of similarly with this mounted heroic culture. The, now, I think the country is, is, is Toy Roden, Turoden? Turoden. 
Turodin. And the yeah. adjective is Turand, though, right? Is that right? Right. Okay. Uh, uh, I, I would actually, that's something I, I, I actually was asked this question recently, and I would have been able to tell you better before I was asked. Um, you were asked the uh, you were asked the question because I asked it of the of the of the proofreaders and they said right. Yeah. So Turodin is actually taken from the 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 ruling family name. Oh, okay. But the language and an adjective would would be Turand. Turand. Okay. Yeah. And it, it comes from Turo, T E U R O. So uh, they're they're the the ending to the word means different things. Signifies yeah. signifies different things. Uh, and so and so your question about are these the writers of Rohirrim? No, they're not. Well, it happens. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so so I think they're. I'm not saying you're copying them, or, or but it's interesting because they're the conversation they have with Druidane is interesting because they don't understand his culture. The right the consentium they have they have. Uh, sort of barbaric ideas or interpreting his culture, right? Uh, the, the absence of rank, they interpret as everyone being noble, right? And they say, every, everybody is filthy rich. Uh, they all have noble titles. And I thought this is really interesting. This is sort of, um, you know, Tolkien could have gone here. He's got the Shire has elected mayors and stuff, right? But he just, he just puts those cultures side by side and then they, they go to Mount Doom. You put those cultures side by side and show that there is uh, confusion. There's misunderstanding uh, uh, between them. And I just wonder if you had any comment on that. Uh, yeah, it was, if there are any, th those similarities are entirely uh, <laughs> unintended. <laughs> it was not intended as a token callback. It was the underlying, the underlying issues, or, or I guess drivers of the fact that if you were to visit the main of, uh, of Trodden, uh, you would find that most of their forces are not riders. Um, they have, they have uh, very, very, uh, they have a number of fortified cities. Uh, they are actually, despite the fact that they seem perhaps barbaric in comparison to, to Druidane and Dunarans, uh, they, they would be considered probably a very high culture in terms of techn uh, literacy, technological capabilities, things like this. But it is a mark of just how many different levels therefore there are in the world. Um, they, the fact that you're running into riders is because you wouldn't want to send any force out on these planes that isn't mounted sure. because the, the bent have huge advantages in, in endurance more than anything else. And they will run you to the ground, which is exactly what's happening with Druidane, who, uh, who, as you said, is, has been seeking a, um, a lost outrider uh, of one of his, he's an outrider and there's an outrider that was up here and has um, apparently gone missing. So that brings him here. So to some degree, it was, it was the, the fact that they were riders um, was, was, um, is, is actually an outgrowth of the environment in which it was taking place. They have just as, they have just as many folks who would be foresters if you go to their forests and, and things like that. But uh, it's kind of, it's actually kind of nice. I didn't see it. Uh, I suppose at some level I was, you know, they say you only steal from the best. So maybe I was, uh, but uh, that, but the, the opportunity for a cultural contrast was very, very um, 
was was very very intentional because the follow-on to that where the one says you're all nobles aren't you and he says no none of us are nobles he says well you're all rich he says well you know he says look how many of you starve and Druid thinks to himself he's got a point yeah. starvation is pretty much unknown in Dunara and and that was a way for me to also sort of underscore, even in a well-organized nation outside of Dinara in this sort of post-imperial period, um, there's a world of wants. And that's one of the things that I also try to, to introduce early on when um, Druidane is looking out in, in a very, right in the first chapter, he's looking out over a port, all the ships that have come into Dinara. And, and he's, he looks at the he looks at how interesting they are. They speak all these different languages. They're dressed in all these different ways. And then when he begins to realize that, um, that everything in Dunara is, is sort of almost, for instance, Eli Whitney, the, the lesson of Eli Whitney regarding mass production, uh, mass production would not be at all a, um, a, a novelty in Dunara. That's a lot of the ways they do things, which is a holdover from the sort of the imperial methodicism, uh, you know, being methodical that way. Um, and he realizes all of a sudden, my gosh, the people that I thought were grandparents down there, they're parents, they're, they're thin, not because they're, they, they probably don't get enough to eat, not because they're, they're fit and they, they do all these things with ships and are moving boxes around. All, no. And there's a very different world beyond the boundaries of Dinar, which is one of the reasons why this probably truly, that, that's a, a way in which I would say the, the, the Bildungsroman vibe is very much, uh, I would say, sort of backed up, emphasized, um, amplified by the fact that this is not just going out into the world. This is going out into the world and waking up. Yeah. That the whole world is not as safe and as filled with comparative plenty as the one in which you grew up and which you assumed to be just the norm, which is a little bit, I think, there you're talking about an intention that has nothing to do with fantasy and perhaps a little bit more to do with the way people in the developed world on this planet find it very easy to forget or never really even have to encounter the fact that the rest of the world is living under very different circumstances. And, and think about why, maybe. Yeah, and think about why. Exactly right. Uh, fantastic. Well, okay, well, so let's go back. To, so now we can start the interview. Those are just like, those are like the kind <laughs> those of... Those are the appetizers? Yeah, that was... Uh, yeah. So, uh, okay, so your protagonist, our, our, our point of view character is, is Druidane. Um, we meet him when he's, we meet him in a journal entry when he's nine. And I think his father or mother said, Hey, you should keep a journal. And so he says, I should keep a journal. And he's like, Mist and he can't spell journal. Yeah. <laughs> One scratches it out. Uh, so, um, so tell us, tell us about him. What makes him interesting? Uh, why, why'd you pick him for the, for the protagonist? Uh, because, and I suppose this is, this may be another trait of me as an author, I, I will, I avoid characters, types, archetypes that you can pigeonhole. Um, I think I, I know I can open a story and I say, I think I know where we're going here. In just in terms of, is this in, in fantasies, you're usually dealing with one of a, a handful of archetypes, which now, of course, we think about in terms of gaming, 
but that's because that's sort of like that's a little bit of thinking that history is the cart yes. and then the horse in front of it yes. because we get that from from myth we get that from tolkien we get that from dunsany we get that from la morte d'Arthur. we get you know and we get it from sword and sorcery novels of fritz lieber and, and howard and long before anybody sat down and said can we tell our own stories and use dice to determine outcomes um these were these were fixed things. I think the I think the shame the, the, and and I, I, certainly I made part of my living early on in my career through writing for games. I certainly discovered games at, at age at, at a very early age, my at thirteen, I believe. Um, so I was right there at sort of you know the the opening of it. But what they've done is they've taken uh, they've made what were tropes, what were archetypes, now have have become so heavily used. That they've become almost self parodies. You 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 can and, and so one of the things that I did when I sat down and wrote this was I said whichever whatever character I'm using, um, whatever they do, I'm going to contradict what you expect at some point in your exposure of them. You may at first think that Ahern is a a a big dumb bluff, emotionally unintelligent fighter type. Oh, no. No, particularly as we get to the second half of the novel, we realize why he's doing it. And the fact that he actually read a lot and he uses he uses that, that sort of demeanor as as a way to be underestimated. And so there's a there's, you know, and I will, again, subvert. I think there are moments when I, I, I do not deconstruct but I will interrogate, and in the course of interrogation, if I if I find something wanting, I will subvert it. And I think each one of the the characters are at some level an attempt to subvert the easy tropes of fantasy characters. So, um, and I can't even I can't even say if that really addresses your 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 question. I guess it does well, more broadly. So. Yeah. Be because some of the other characters, you, you look at them and you say, okay, human fighter, elf, rogue, uh, which maybe in itself is a little subversion. You got an elf character who's really interested in poisons. Uh, and is actually probably the least concerned with killing people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, surprisingly noble orc characters, right? Uh, not unambiguously, but... but uh, uh, um, I don't want to give one any spoilers, but I was charmed by the moment when they realized what they had really gone down into the undergloom for. Uh, right? It's like, oh, <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, but so, but Drew, so maybe right where you're going with this is that Druidane is 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 not an obviously classable character. Uh, he's is not. It's not clear that he's a. What he wants to be is a legionnaire, right? He wants to be a yes, player. and and and. I think I think at least the first two thirds of the book, we right up to the end. He 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 will doggedly say, and then I will get into the legion, and then I will get into the legion. Um, but he's in this kind of meritocratic uh, society where, at least for some of the big institutions, you kind of test in and you get admitted or you don't. Um, so he's he's an he's an orphan, right? We we uh, and I will say, uh, and I'll, let me phrase this as a question, um, an observation and a question. So I think one of his, and I've already said this, his things that makes him distinctive is his ability to see things from an unusual perspective and then kind of ask questions. Now, to what extent does this make him sort of Cain Riordan-like, right? I mean, is, is his real ability, is he, 
is this like a, a Ganon-esque type where he's like, you know, he's, he's sort of learning man, capital L, capital M, right? Is sort of, is sort of the mode of the hero. Um, so I think a yes or a no would do disservice to the question. Um, and also would not fill a lot of airtime. So we'll, uh, <laughs> Good. Uh, which Dave might be thinking that would be a blessing. Um, but, uh, but I would say that, that asking questions, um, why is, is why and how are, are, um, are always questions. I think I find to some extent, that's probably me, uh, coming through because I, I'm, pretty much that person who accepts very little on face value. And I would say most of, I find the most interesting characters to write. Uh, it, it, they embody some part of that. Uh, I find also that if you're not asking questions about the broader world, um, one of the reasons why I guess I'm a fan of, uh, of, of the Odyssey for all of its for all of its flaws, for all of the facts that it's a collection of Homeric hymns, not a sort of unified work, for all the fact that um, if if we insist on taking our present moment and using that as the as the ruler against which we would we would measure older works, then yes, it is it is a very sexist work, and it is it has it ha, it it would have many warts if written today. Um, I, but what I like about it is that Odysseus is, first of all, in one of the primary translations, the first line in that translation is, this is the story of a man who was never at a lack. And it is, it is the resourceful hero. You, if, you, if you're just big brain, if you're just big muscle, if you're, if you, if it, that strikes me as a kind of one-trick pony. How far can you go with it? And, and the habit to be realistic, not a lot of people in my experience, uh, numerically, there are a lot of people who changed, who changed their gears in their 20s, who did not ask a lot of questions before who do. I think actually that's one of the enduring values of a college education <laughs> delivered, you know, going back to the idea of what, what what would a good professor academic do? That would be one of the things, not to pass out wisdom or receive knowledge or, or things like that, but to ask the questions yep. that make a person want to live a life of asking questions and, and engage the world and come up with new answers because you only come up with new answers when you question what's already there. So for me, all of the, the mileage, how, how much legs does... Do a, does a character have how much how much how many you know how much legs does does a story have is to some extent connected directly to how many questions can you ask is it just overcoming obstacles if it's just overcoming obstacles I, I mean I can enjoy that story but I will be pleasantly surprised if it gives me anything more than enjoyment yeah. there's there's it's a big world there's a lot to our own any others we might imagine uh, and and it's finding your way through it in a and in a in a thoughtful manner that I think makes for for me the character that I'm interested in writing. 
So I don't know that 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 means that they're all alike, but they do tend to have a trait in common. Um, I I um, it 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 strikes me. You see a lot of characters, as far as I'm concerned, and I'll give you I'll give you an example. I think that first of all, let's let's go to one that we all know pretty much. Whether we whether love revile or see in context is a different issue. Uh, is the Conan series right? Sword and sorcery, clearly a delivery for entertainment. Um, and, and yet the closest that, that and, and, and Howard is very, very deft in this. Every once in a while, Conan has an epiphanic moment and makes an observation. Um, but in general, that's not his personality type. If you ever wanted the sword and sorcery to be more than overcoming the obstacles and actually kind of an interesting look at what, what constituted evil, it does a much better job. It'll, 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 it does a much better job of sort of digging around at what, what are the different kinds of evil? What are the different ways it manifests in the world? But it doesn't really answer the question of what would good be. And also, what, how do you achieve balance? Because you're never gonna, you're never gonna make, you know, the the utopian dream is is well labeled. It's a dream. Um, it's an objective, and as long as it's an objective, I think it's potentially an ennobling one. But if we actually measure our success or failure by achieving it, you're gonna be a lot of depressed people around. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I think sometimes it leaves a lot of people depressed because they don't because there's a there's a disconnect with this is there's a reason we call it an ideal not a not a not a cheap reality so so for me these characters are ways to talk about these questions in character and to talk about not just let's say evil which i think is kind of that's low-hanging fruit as far as i'm concerned i think the harder one is what you see you're talking about those conversations between you know uh druidane and, and his his uh turon res rescuers right um is is how how do different people get by? What are what are their what are what are their different societies made up of? Um, and in contrast, what do they maybe make us reflect upon regarding our own choices and ethical lives? Um, so that has that. I, I I find it fun to ask questions about things. Yeah, but I, I also feel it is that is the pathway to actually giving a theme to a novel which doesn't bang you over the head in some sort of didactic attempt to, to essentially advance a given ideology. I'm, I'm not interested in any ideology yeah. in my books. Uh, anybody who comes to my books looking for either one, you're not gonna be pleased because I, I think the world, usually ideology in my opinion, whichever it is, is a simplified way of boiling down a much more complicated situation. And I'm sorry, I, I think that what one of the things that makes a world believable is it's got to be as just as complicated as we know life to be. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's absolutely right. So I, I've, I've noticed here that we've sort of come back around and touched on that specialization uh, obliquely, the sort of specialization of scholars and and one of the one of the things you've I think uh, implied or I'll tease it out of what you said is hey it's not just scholars you know and when we talk about at least we talk about characters in books people get specialized as the fighter 
as the you know the assassin as the whatever and 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 uh i like i'm really interested in your point that lack of specialization gives you sort of exposure to the questions and the ability to kind of ask actually i'm going to make a here's a connection that uh, maybe was maybe was not in your mind but adam smith okay you didn't see this coming the wealth of nations he talks mm -hmm. about there's a passage where he talks about making pins and he says listen we get the cheapest pins if we specialize the tasks, if there's somebody in a pin factory whose job is to draw the wire and there's a separate person who snips the wire and there's someone else who all they do all day is they is they turn the head of the needle and someone sharp Aristotle's politics. Yeah. So we get the most pins all the way back. Yep. But we don't get the most interesting people that way. He says the person who's more interesting and, and the one he uses, he says the plowman does the plowman has to keep his own, his plow in working order. He has to know how to repair it. He has to understand the temperament of the animal. He has to understand the effect of temperature on the consistency of soil he's gonna plow and a thousand other things to be a good plowman. It's not as efficient as the pin maker who just sharpens pins, but it makes for a way more interesting human soul. Um, I, I also think it, I would, I would absolutely go with that. And I think that, um, it's interesting because I think if Aristotle could see what that initial, you know, uh, encouragement to specialization, because you basically saying that a city cannot grow without specialization uh, and therefore city state question mark. But um, but I also see to me uh, there's that that pin maker. And I'm now I'm thinking of sweatshops all over the world. Mm, yeah. um, there is, there is both the moral issue of the economy of it, because it actually gives, when you think about it, it would give people an incentive to make sure that that's all that people know how to do. But then if all they're knowing how to do is to make this one thing, you're, you, it would be an unusual change in human nature for people to be happy with that, which means if that's going to be the most efficient way to do it, and the most efficient way to do it is, for lack of a better term, soul crushing, because you only do this one thing, and that's all you're going to be paid for, and that's the only thing you're valued for. Unless you, un, un, unless the majority, the great majority, are are you know happy to have their, to bend their neck to that brutal yoke, you're going to have what Marx tells you about, which is sort of like you know, there's going to be you're, you are breeding an economic situation that will create unhappiness. Now, he talks about it on, on terms that I'm not so very interested in. It's not that I don't think that Marx doesn't bring us interesting models. I just think that that's what they are. They're interesting models. Most economic observations are interesting models. I've never found one that really, in my mind, you know, encapsulates and captures all, all the moving bits. Um, and, the, and the parts that defy quantification, which are the human spirit. I don't want to make pins. I don't want to be just a pin maker. And the terrifying outcome to this is, you know, talk about science fiction, Brave New World. That's why to me, Brave New World is the far more dangerous, is, is the far more dangerous book in terms of what it would, if it's an accurate prediction, the 1984. 1984 has the seeds of its own destruction built into it. You know, live by the sword, it, they will die by the sword. That will happen. But the seduction and then the genetic breeding of people, if they're people anymore, who are happy to make the pins, 
Right. They're adapted to make the pins. That that is terrifying because that I could see being something that happens. Yeah. Make people pliable. And so and so this um, and I, I you know Adam Smith. See, you got me to Adam. You you brought in Adam Smith. We've gone way the hell off the beaten track. <laughs> but but I think the the, you brought the, in the, point is, the the point is well taken about about um, uh, educator Albert North Whitehead. He had a model of learning, romance precision generalization. I don't know if you're if you're familiar with it and probably a lot of our listeners aren't, but basically these three stages are romance is like when you're three and it's sort of like, you like, you like painting. So put your fingers in paint, make pictures and, and use Play-Doh and use the paint on the plate. Just go wild, have fun. Once you are doing that or whatever the topic may be, um, growing plants, etc. then comes the precision, which is okay. Now, do you want certain outcomes? If you want certain outcomes, here are the things which we have discovered tend to produce those outcomes. Now, that would tend to make only pin makers, right? But then the last phase is generalization, which is now that you have both found this thing you love or find the things you love in whatever the topic is, and then you have applied precision to it, now you're at the level where generalize it. You think about it in terms of another discipline. Think about it in terms of what isn't being done. Think about it in terms of the changes that have occurred between the time that all those standards were set and where we are now. And if, it, if there's a new evolutionary stage to take, and that's coming back to the, the need, I guess, for, for um, you know, uh, a generalist, a generalist view of things is, is, in, is very interesting to me. And, uh, and yeah, I would say that that's, that's absolutely, all these characters tend to show what I think, you know, it, 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 people who will decide to go out and, and take their own, take matters into their own hands and then manage to live for more than a year doing it are probably gonna have to have some of the inventiveness and some of the multi-talented components of a generalist, which is why I think that if you look at the, the, the protagonists in this, that's actually not, that's a fairly common trait amongst most of them. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Well, let's, let's follow Drew Dane's uh, uh, career a little bit. We want to be careful. One, one last thing that I'd like to say, you want to, you, you were talking about, uh, about, uh, you know, precision and, and, and we, we got on ideologies and things like that. All I can say to readers out there is there is a dragon in this book. No surprise based on the cover. But oh, does the dragon have something to say about that? If you think about his his take on which books actually managed to survive across the gulfs of time, oh. because he has a comment on that, which is um, which I would I would like to think may have relevance to our uh, to our modern age as well. Tune in next week for the second and final part of Butler's discussion with Charles Gannon about this broken world. And now, John Ringo's Live Free or Die. Mr. Rail is in a meeting, the executive secretary said sternly. And if I'm wrong, he'll fire me, Jeff said, breezing past her. I said stop. 
Jeff opened the door to the president of Northeastern Operations Offices and strode across the carpet to his desk. Mr. Rail was, in fact, reading the Wall Street Journal. He looked up as the door opened, tilted his head to the side, and set the paper down. This is either important or you've just pretty much killed your career, Rail said mildly. Jeff walked up to the desk and held his finger to his lips. Then he held out his hands, cupped, so the executive could see the Atacirc for just a moment. It's about the CFID project, sir, Jeff said. The one we used to call Babylon. Tyler Vernon used to work with me over at Verizon, and I thought he might have some ideas. As it turns out, he does. It's okay, Bernice, Rail said, waving at his secretary. This really is an emergency. I'll be in... Shield Room 5. Mr. Tyler, Weasley Rail said heartily as soon as the door was closed. Pleasure to see you in the building again. Pleasure to see you too, Mr. Weasley, Tyler said as Jeff winced. It's... damn it. It's Tyler Vernon, isn't it? Sorry. We both got the same problem with our names, sir, Tyler said, smiling. No offense intended. None taken, Rail said. What have you got? I have to meet tomorrow night clandestinely with the Glatton, Tyler said, sitting down. I need to pick up a pickup's load of a certain product. Less than a pickup's load, actually. They will trade me a full pickup of Atacirc. Christ. Jeff said. Six petabytes of variable-use memory, infinite parallel processor, and the size of a matchhead. You could buy... Name a third-world country. Name a country. I don't think anyone's seen a case of it in one place. More than that, Tyler said. As you said, nobody has seen a case in one place. You can replace a server farm with one chip. The value I saw someone calculate and wired on a standard dry bushel of it is $100 billion, which nobody can afford. A pickup load is going to distort that price. I still need a million dollars, at least a hundred grand in cash. That's for those. AT&T gets some serious players that can pay for the rest. I'll take a check. We'll negotiate for it here. AT&T gets 1% as the house, and I need to do this quick because times are wasting. Among other things, I'll need to get the money from a bank and they close soon. Banks stay open to surprising hours when the right people call, Rail said. It's not worth a mill. Among other things, some of it's bad, Tyler said. I also got the information that it's their scrap and about a hundred years old. More or less what we thought, Rail said, narrowing his eyes. But that sounds like you got more information out of the Glatton than most governments. They are, surprisingly, fans of my series, Tyler said, shrugging. I just remembered I owe them a sketch. That's beside the point. One mil. Two hundred grand, Rail said. The hundred in cash is no problem. I'll call JP. Not going to just give this away, Tyler said. Nine hundred and that's flat. Novell is just down the road, and I know people there, too. Two-fifty, and I'll make sure you can breeze in and out of the bank. 
and 20% on the trades. Wednesday morning work? Wednesday morning works, but if you think I'm giving you 20%, you've been drinking. 2%, 875. 18 and 3. I'll tell you the truth. I'm not going lower than 9, and I'm not going higher than 4. Take it or leave it. I'll leave it. But I'll get closer. 12% and 500 grand. Seriously, that's a good deal. Totally sucks. 5 and 800. Rail considered his opponent and shrugged. I'd be doing a disservice to the shareholders if I went lower than 10% as house. There's going to be costs involved, and 800 is highway robbery. 600. 750. 7. Done. I'll geek to 10. Then we have a deal. Rail said, standing up. I'll need to go get the check cut personally, 8 a.m. Wednesday morning. Can you get the right people here by then? Tyler asked. We're taking cases of Atacirc, and it has to be all sub rosa. We've gotten used to working around the Horvath, Rail said with a sigh. They fortunately either don't pay as much attention as people think or can't count. We've simply had to sneak materials through the system beyond what they allow. We are, in other words, used to this sort of thing. I can get the right people here, with their checkbooks. Speaking of which, stay here. I'll go get the check. Tyler tried not to bounce as he walked to his truck. He still had a lot of stuff to get done, and if the Horvath were watching, it could still get very sticky. Mr. Vernon, this is a surprise? Uh, yeah, Tyler said, trying to remember the red-headed guy's name. No chance. Good to, uh, see you again. Uh, Dan, the man said, holding out his hand as if to shake. In it was a badge. Hey, can we talk? Sure, Dan, Tyler said, trying not to curse. I'm sort of busy at the moment. Email me? My van's right over here, Dan said, putting his hand on Tyler's arm. Come on, won't take a second. Tyler, feeling both pissed and a tad nervous, got in the black-tinted van. It had been rigged as something of a mobile command post, but what was interesting was that there were no electronics. There were some cameras that looked as if they were 15 years old, but super advanced at the time. Chemical photography cameras. And lots of paper. Mr. Vernon, a man in a suit said, fifties and a bit chubby with an incongruous goatee. My name is Senior Special Agent Aaron Spuler. Welcome to the command post of Project 4038 which is spying on Tyler Vernon? Tyler asked. There are laws, you know. Which is spying on aliens who can, what was the phrase, go through our most advanced firewalls so easily it's like looking through an open window, Spuler said, and anyone who has interaction with them because every interaction with ETs is a potential national security problem as long as that goddamned Horvath ship is in the sky. Which is pretty indiscreet of you to say, Tyler said. Give us some credit, please, 
Agent Poor said. This is a shield car, and we made sure you were not carrying your cell. Maple syrup? Spuler asked incredulously. They're addicted to maple syrup? Shh, Tyler said. Christ, now everybody's gonna know. Our job is gathering information, Mr. Vernon, SSA Spuler said, not giving it out. And don't worry about congressional investigations or something. Nobody wants to know we exist. Their chemistry is incompatible with ours, Agent Poor said. How can they metabolize it? No clue, Tyler said. But they reacted like it was booze or something. We saw the reaction, Spuler said, waving at the cameras. But the problem is the Horvath. The Glatun apparently have as much control over the Horvath information systems as Horvath have over ours, Tyler said. Or so they say. We're going to meet tomorrow night. I need to go get some money and then somehow get my hands on a truckload of maple syrup without the Horvath finding out. They'll come to me and give me cover for the transfer. Frankly, it feels a bit like a drug deal. Your truck? Spuler asked. Yes. That should escape their notice as long as they are not actively watching you, Spuler said. More would be harder. The flip side is that if this is popular among the Glatun, it could give us some leverage. I've thought about that, Tyler said, holding up a hand to forestall a reply. Let me just be clear about something. I'm not going to play puppet to the government. By the same token, yes, I care about that damned Horvath ship and this country and the world and humanity. And I will do my level best to figure out a way to get it out of our sky. But right now, I need to go get some money and find six 55-gallon drums of maple syrup in about 30 hours. We're not going to get involved in a purely commercial enterprise, Spuler said. But this isn't on one level. If you need our help, we'll be around. Thanks, Tyler said. Can I get out now? Feel free, Spuler said, waving at the door. Just try not to get the world destroyed, okay? Doing my best, Tyler said yanking open the door. When he got to his truck, Tyler picked up his cell phone and brought up his contacts. Hey, Petra, Tyler said, trying not to sigh. Tyler, Petra said. It was that tone that I'm unsatisfied with the situation, but I'm not going to bring it up tone. Sorry I've been behind on my payments, I'm going to slide some money over this week. Thank you, Petra said civilly. I'm doing some projects with AT&T, so the money should be better, Tyler said. So hopefully no more money issues. That would be nice. It's hard enough to make it on the settlement as it is. The girls are right here. Tyler thought about his kids every day. What he had not thought about until that moment was what that meant in terms of his current doings. It took him less than a second, a very brief pause, to make the hardest decision 
of his life. He hadn't talked to his kids in two weeks, and he realized he might not be talking to them for months. But when you sail in harm's way, you don't take hostages. He squelched the screaming inside. Don't really have the time, he said airily. Gotta go. Bye. Petra Vernon closed her cell phone and looked at it with a puzzled expression. She and Tyler might have had their differences, and schedules might have prevented him seeing the girls much, but he always wanted to talk to them. They'd been married for ten years, and even over the phone, she could read him like a book. Something was going on, and it was very odd. And if he didn't want to talk to the girls, there was a reason. She made a face and put the phone in her pocket. She'd find out what was going on when it started to smell. Hey, Mr. Hazelbauer! Tyler yelled, waving at the tractor. Jason Hazelbauer was one of the old farmers in the district. A lot of people had moved in from outside the area of late. Most of those were Vermonters and people from the People's Republic of Massachusetts looking for somewhere cheaper to live and immediately wanting to change things so they were as screwed up as Vermont and Massachusetts. The Hazelbowers, though, were descended from Hessians who decided they'd rather farm alongside the Scots and English of the White Mountains than fight them. Mr. Vernon, the farmer said in a slow New England drawl. Pleasure to see ya. Fine weather we're having. Great, Tyler said. Leaves are coming out a treat. Be a good winter for the sap, Hazelbauer said, climbing off the tractor. Good leaves means good sap. And how are you doing? Well, sir, well, Tyler said. For all he dressed like a homeless guy, Hazelbauer probably owned more land than Mrs. Cranshaw, and, notably, a maple syrup distillery and about as renowned for keeping his own counsel as Mrs. Cranshaw was for being a revolting bitch. He was also, Tyler recalled, as he craned his head up and up and then up again, the single most massive guy Tyler had ever met. He looked more like a mountain than a human being. I have a rather unusual request. Are you carrying a cell phone? Don't hold with them, Mr. Hazelbauer said. If someone wants me, they can call me at home, and if I don't answer, they can come to find me if it's that important. Yes, sir, Tyler said. He'd heard that about Hazelbauer as well. Just rather not have anyone listening in on our conversation. Some people can listen to them even if they're turned off. Yep, Hazelbauer said narrowing his eyes and adjusting his ball cap. What have you gotten yourself into, young man? Simple trade, sir, simple trade, Tyler said. The thing is, I need to buy some barrels of maple syrup, but I need it to look as if I'm not buying them. I don't need anyone knowing my business. That's an odd request, young man, Mr. Hazelbauer said, tilting his head to the side. Well, sir? Tyler said, shrugging. It's got a bit to do with the 
revenuers. Ah, Hazelbauer said, his face going hard. Them. You need not say more. When do you need it? I'd like to do it like this. There's a spaceship landing in Homer's field, Tyler whispered to himself in wonder as the stars were occluded. The sky was clear and bright with a thin crescent moon, what the locals still called a smuggler's moon. New Hampshire had, back in the day, been a major supplier of corn whiskey to the lowland folks, back when people considered a tax of 15% on their hard work of running a still to be a slap in the face. There was more than one meaning to the state's motto. A shiner's moon was gibbous, half full to full. That was when you could see well enough by night to get the still running and the mules with corn up to the hollers. Up in the hollows of the hills, the smell of the distilling was caught and held, keeping the revenue agents from finding you, making shine. To bring it down to city folk with their silver, you needed good dark to sneak past those revenuers, a smuggler's moon. Do you have the stuff? Wathet whispered as he stepped off the cargo ramp. Six barrels of first quality dragon's tears, Tyler whispered back. There was no point to whispering. Nobody was moving this time of night, and Homer's field was back off the road. But the whole thing did have the feel of a drug deal. That was fine by Tyler. Grandad had had a few stories about slipping past revenuers here and there. Family tradition was being upheld. Awesome, Fabbit said, dragging something that looked like a cross between a broom and a forklift. Tyler opened up the back of the truck and started to roll one of the barrels off onto the ground. Got it, Fabbit said, sliding the device into place. He carried the 600-pound barrel away through the air. Anti-grav, Tyler said with a sigh. I want. Might be able to do something about that if this stuff takes off, Wathayet said. By the way, when my head finally cleared... I felt screwed. Come on, Tyler protested. You're trading trash for something you're going to make a fortune on. And on that subject, we need to talk. What? Wathayet said. You want my firstborn? No, Tyler said. I want your corporations. You want me to give this up? Wathayet said. No way. Come back in about 30 of our days. Tyler said. I'll have two of our heavy trucks loaded with dragon's tears. That's about enough to fill your cargo hold. But between now and then, you need to contact your corporations. I'm going to get as much of a control in this market as I can. I am, hereby, willing to contract that the ship Spinward Crossing, crew thereof, will get 5% of any trade in dragon's tears in which I engage with other parties. If they will upon determining that there is an economic worth to Dragon's Tears, engage with major Glatun corporate partners for further trade. Bottom line, you get 5% of all the Dragon's Tears I trade for the rest of your life. Well, split however you split stuff. 
If I'm trading with multiple corporations, I can get more than you're going to get me, right? Trade for what? What they had said thoughtfully. I mean, you guys are trading for Atacirc. Wow, I get 5% of all the Atacirc you guys buy? No way. Think I'm just going to trade for Atacirc? Tyler said. I'm not sure how to do it, but I'm going to trade for whatever you guys use as currency and not cheap and then buy at a cirque. New stuff. It's not crap. You guys don't have a hypernode point on the whole damned planet, Wathayat said. Then the first thing I'll trade for is a hypernode link, Tyler said. Wathayat, we've got a Horvath ship sitting on our necks. We need your big guys to sit up and take notice. That's not going to happen, sorry, because a small-time free trader got lucky. It will, if they're making the profits. Think about it. Especially since sooner or later the Horvath will find out about this, and then they'll cut us both out. In my case, probably cut up. They'll take the dragon's tears, trade it to your big corporations, and you'll be back to trading with primitive planets for coconut shells and folk art. All transferred, Fabbit said. Hey, can I? No. Wathayat said. That last point has merit, I'll admit. I'll think about it. Oh, one more thing, Tyler said, going to his front seat and pulling out a jug. Look, I know we're not contracted on this, but that primitive folk art, could I uh, buy it back from you? Hell yeah, Wathayat said, hefting the jug. For this? Sure. I don't get the night painting anyway. The painter was kind of cracked, Tyler said. It's the night sky the way he saw it. Tyler started at the tap on his window and sat up, rolling down the window. Were you here all night? Jeff asked, looking around the secure garage. I had Ireland's worth of Atacirc in the back, Tyler said, wiping his eyes and yawning. What was I going to do, sit at home with a shotgun on my lap? He set the shotgun on the floor. Not to mention what you had up front, Jeff said, his eyes wide. Is that? Yeah, Tyler said, getting out. And two Goyas and a Matisse and some Italian guy from the Renaissance. I couldn't fit the Venus. What they had said, he'd store it for me off planet. I'd appreciate it if AT&T would do me the same service on planet. Lord knows I'm not going to keep them in my house. Maybe starry, starry night. It'd look great in the kitchen. Well, come on up to the conference room, Jeff said. We'll get some coffee in you. A donut would be nice. Gentlemen, welcome, Rail said, nodding at the executives gathered in the shield room. Sorry for the crowding, but I think this is the appropriate venue. By arrangement with Mr. Tyler Vernon, we have a rather large quantity of Atacirc available. AT&T will be taking a 10% cut on all trades. We will be bidding by a lot, which will be, pardon, a case-by-case -case basis. How many? An Asian asked. 26 cases, Tyler said. All the Spinward Crossing could fit in my pickup. It was up to the roof. They're hauling them up here at the moment. 
there was a problem of spoofing the internal cameras so the Horvath wouldn't notice. Twenty-six! The man had a British accent. Bloody hell! I don't suppose you'd like to tell us what you're trading? I'll let the term proprietary hang in the air, Tyler said, sipping his coffee. The Atacirc we're getting is, of course, not consistent, Rail said. As soon as it is delivered, you will be given an opportunity to examine each case and decide what it is worth, and then we'll get the bidding started. I think they went a little crazy off that one case nobody could find any faults in, Tyler said, rifling through the checks. They were the big kind, so people could fit all the zeros. Feeling a bit stunned? Rail asked in a contented tone. He was going to come out of this smelling like a rare hybrid rose. He'd just made a fair bit of AT&T's profits for the quarter in one day's work. It's not every day that a guy becomes an instant billionaire, Tyler said. Multi, multi-billionaire. In fact, I don't think anyone has ever become a multi-billionaire in a day. So what are you going to do with it? Jeff asked. And is anyone else really in the mood for a drink? Champagne would be about right, Weasley said. Tyler's buying. I am in a mood for a drink, Tyler said. But first, I need to see a lawyer. Besides the tax implications, which are going to be large, I've got some stuff to buy. I'll need to take a rain check. That was another installment in our ongoing audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Live Free or Die. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks, as always, to audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Thanks to G.J. Butler. And praise, thanks, and gratitude to Charles E. Gannon for sitting down and talking about his new novel with us. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof booth somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Tune in here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>